If you please take your Bibles and open up to the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark. We will be looking this morning at chapter 10, Mark chapter 10, verse 17 through 31. We are continuing our sermon series through the Gospel of Mark. And you will note on in verse 17, it will say in the beginning of our passage that uh, Jesus, as he was setting out on his journey... Uh, Recall that we have been saying ever since back in chapter 8, when Peter made the great confession that Jesus is the Christ, and Jesus then predicted the cross that he would bear in Jerusalem, and he would rise three days later. Ever since that confession and that prediction from Jesus, Jesus and his disciples are going to make a fast track toward Jerusalem where Jesus is going to die. And as he is making this journey toward the cross in Jerusalem, He is met by this rich young man who Luke calls a rich young ruler who asks Jesus, how do I inherit eternal life? Uh, So with that introduction out of the way, let's give attention now to the reading of God's holy and inspired word. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. And said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Thus far, the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Might he write its truth upon our hearts this morning. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we come to you ready and expectant for you to do mighty things as your word is read and preached. Come now, 
We pray by your spirit, open our ears and our eyes to see Christ afresh as our Lord and Savior and as our only hope of salvation under heaven. Do this, we pray, for we ask it in the strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Today we come to a very familiar story, a story I'm sure many of you have heard and and know quite well, the story of a rich young man. Uh, In Luke's account, in Luke chapter 18, he actually calls this man a ruler. We often actually consider this story from Luke's perspective. We often call him a rich young ruler. And often, oftentimes when we think of the story of the rich young ruler and his encounter with Jesus, uh, I think really to- many times what primarily we look at when we look at this story is the lesson of the danger of riches, uh, the lesson of the danger of money. And certainly that message is embedded here in this passage as it is a message that is loud and clear throughout Scripture, both Old Testament and new. Uh, the story of the rich young ruler in verse 20, 17 through 22, however, along with giving us a message about the danger of riches, is giving us a lesson at the same time, a pathway, if you will, leading to a more grand and general principle that applies to all men. Verse 26, the disciples ask the question, then who can be saved? And Jesus replies, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. This encounter with the rich young ruler and the explanation following from Jesus leads to this all-important question from the disciples that all people must ask, both rich and poor, then who can be saved? Is salvation even possible? And the answer that Jesus gives us in this passage is yes, salvation is possible because salvation is of the Lord. And so what I want us to see for the remainder of our time this morning is two places where we find the salvation of the Lord. First, we find the salvation of the Lord found in his son, verse 17 through 22. Second, we find the salvation of the Lord found in his grace. Verse 23 through 31. So first, salvation of the Lord is found in his son. Verse 17 through 22. Verse 17, Jesus is approached by a rich young man. And as I mentioned earlier in Luke's account in Luke 18, he he calls this man a ruler, which most commentators, a lot of commentators believe that he was most likely a sort of ruler in his local synagogue. So here is a man who is rich and is very well respected among his Jewish contemporaries. And we are told that he kneels before Jesus. He kneels before Jesus, showing great respect for Jesus. He is coming to Jesus with the utmost respect. Everything in his demeanor and in his words seems to indicate genuine respect for Jesus. He calls him good teacher, and he asks the question that is a very good question that all of us must ask Jesus. How do I, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Verse 18, Jesus' response is somewhat puzzling. Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is is good except God alone. 
It's so much, somewhat of an odd response from Jesus, isn't it? We want to say to Jesus, man, this guy's coming to you with respect and honor. Why are you so harsh with this man? But as so often is the case with Jesus' harsh responses to those who come to him with genuineness, Jesus is actually pushing this man to think clearer and to think more on what he means by Jesus being good. For this man, Jesus is really a good, wise teacher. He is a good, wise rabbi among many other wise rabbis, but he is not Emmanuel, God with us. He is not the divine Messiah that Peter confessed back in chapter 8. He is a good teacher. He is a good rabbi, and he might be able to help this man out of his predicament, out of this burden of his eternal destiny. Verse 19, Jesus says to this rich young ruler, you know the commandments, and he goes on to cite five of the Ten Commandments, and he adds defraud in that list. Verse 20, the rich young ruler says, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. Now we see that response from that rich young ruler and knowing what we know, especially from the letters of Paul, we are aghast, are we not, at this response from this man. Since we know no sinner can follow God's law perfectly, scripture makes clear if you break one of God's law, you have broken them all. Clearly, this man is merely looking at the externals of God's law, and he has not yet considered the internal spiritual reality of God's law. He is merely looking at the external realities of the law. He has failed to grasp what Jesus will clearly state in Matthew 5, that if you look at a woman with lustful intent, you have committed adultery. If you have hated a brother in your heart, You have committed murder. He has failed to grasp what Paul makes so clear in Galatians 3, that the intent, the primary intent of the law was to drive us to our sins and expose our helpless condition before an almighty and holy God. So we, knowing Scripture, knowing Paul's letters, and knowing the rest of Scripture, are somewhat aghast by this response from this man. But nevertheless, putting that aside for the moment, putting this man's failures to grasp insight into the spiritual realities of the law, I think we can confidently say that this man was a pretty impressive man. He was an impressive man. He was a man that you would probably look at and respect greatly. You might even try to imitate this man. If this man were around today, perhaps he would be an elder in the church. This is a respected man. Man, a man who would be very impressive, at least on the outside, according to the externals. Now, verse 21 through 22, we get the conclusion of the story. Mark tells us Jesus looked at him and he loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Now, really, I think what we see with this question from Jesus or this response from Jesus and then the response from the young man, that despite the genuineness of this young man, this rich young ruler coming to Jesus, showing all the signs of respect, I think Jesus sees that there's genuineness. Notice Mark tells us that Jesus looked at him and loved him. 
There is certainly genuineness in this man, but we see at the end of the story, I think, really there were two primary steps that this young, rich ruler was unable to take in order to inherit eternal life. First, he was unwilling to check his heart. He was unwilling to check his heart. What is Jesus doing here in verse 21? He is really getting to the heart of this man's problem, is he not? In all his good works, in all of his obedience, what lies beneath his good works and his obedience is a heart that is not set on God, but a heart that is set on his riches. And so all of his external obedience, all of his, his attempts to please God are nothing but filthy rags to a God that looks at the heart and seeks out a pure heart that longs and is inclined towards him. So Jesus gets to the heart of this man's problem. This rich young ruler really is very much like a physically fit man. Works out five days a week. He, he eats really well. You were to look at him and you would think he's going to live till he's 100. But deep down inside, there is a malignant cancer eating away at him. So no matter how much he works out, no matter how much vitamins he takes, no matter how much kale he eats, he is dying. And it won't prolong his life one minute longer because he has failed to take hold of that cancer and do something about it. And so Jesus here is like a good doctor. He gives him the proper diagnosis. He gives the proper diagnosis. Jesus is in a sense saying, the reason you are still unsettled about your eternal destiny, despite all your good works. Have you noticed that? This man's so confident in his works, yet he's still so unsettled about his eternal destiny. And Jesus is essentially saying, the reason you are so unsettled about your eternal destiny is because... You have failed to check the cancer within. You have failed to check your heart that is not inclined towards God, but your riches. So the first step this man has failed to do is check his heart and take care of his heart problem, his soul problem. Second step this man has failed to do is simply to know Jesus for who he truly is, as we have already mentioned it's ironic, isn't it, that the answer to this man's question literally stands right in front of him. John 17, 3, Jesus will say, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This man has come to Jesus looking for the answer to his predicament concerning his eternal destiny, and Jesus gives him the answer. He gives him himself. Come, follow me. What I think we get from this man's response really shows us that this man didn't really truly long for eternal life. This man longed for eternal security. And there is a difference, brothers and sisters, between the two. The longing for eternal security sees Jesus as a good teacher. It is unwilling to throw aside the old life in order to grab on to a new 
It wants to hang on to the old life and just add a new little ingredient on top in order to take care of that burden and that question that really haunts every man and woman. What will happen to me when I die? Seeking eternal security rather than eternal life loves Jesus' benefits without loving Jesus himself. In John 21, we get the famous exchange from Peter and Jesus, where Jesus, in testing Peter and his devotion to him, Jesus will ask Peter three times. He will not ask him, uh, Peter, do you love my benefits? Do you love the things I can give you? Now, three times he says, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Eternal life is union and communion with Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It is to find what Paul found and what this rich young man was unable to find in Philippians 3.8. Paul will say, I count everything as loss. All my good works, all my external obedience to the law, everything that I had, I count it all as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. You could easily replace the words, Christ Jesus, my Lord, with eternal life. Because that is where eternal life is found. It is found in its fullness in Christ. Brothers and sisters, have you checked your heart this morning? Have you asked if Christ were to ask me to give this up, could I? Is there a cancer today that is is hidden within all your external obedience, all the good Christian things you know and that you do, but there is a cancer, there is a bent in your heart that is directed not towards God and his glory, but whatever idol captures your heart? Is there a cancer within that is keeping you from seeing Jesus Christ as he truly is, the way, the truth? And the life. I would ask you and implore for you to check your heart. Throw your old life aside. Throw aside that malignant cancer. And grab hold to that which is truly life. Union and communion. Faith. Union and communion. With the living God, our our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Secondly, salvation of the Lord is found in his grace. Verse 23 through 31. Salvation of the Lord is found in his grace. Verse 23, after this really tragic ending to this story, this sad ending to this story, Jesus looks at his disciples and no doubt he is brokenhearted. After all, he looked at this man and he loved him. He probably has sadness in his eyes as he says to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. We see the response from the disciples in verse 24. They are amazed at this statement. But Jesus still doesn't have their full attention. And so Jesus says to them, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, here, of course, is another famous illustration that we probably know very well. Jesus says that 
uh, a camel going through the eye of a needle is easier than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. A camel was the largest animal in the Palestinian world in the first century, and so Jesus is taking the largest animal and talking about it fitting into the smallest opening. Clearly, hyperbolic, intense language in order to drive home the fact of the impossibility for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And this time, Jesus has the disciples' attention. They aren't just simply amazed, but Mark tells us that they are exceedingly astonished. Now, we have to ask the question, why are these disciples exceedingly astonished? Why has this grabbed the attention of the disciples? Well, first, we need to know that the Judaism of the disciples' day was very much a merit-based religion. If you had a lot of money, you had more resources and time to do religious learning and religious study. Also, if you had a lot of money, it was easier for you to follow the commandments of Moses. Think, for instance, of the Eighth Commandment, you shall not steal. It's usually not rich people that struggle, at least externally, with stealing. It's poor people that usually steal. The fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. In the first century in Jewish circles, that was primarily upheld among adults when you financially uh, supported your elderly parents. So once again, that would be much easier to follow if you were a rich man. So in a merit-based Judaism of the first century, having riches would help you immensely in following at least the externals on the surface laws of Moses. But also, within Jewish thinking, wealth was often seen as a symbol of God's blessing. It was a symbol of God's blessing of God for righteous behavior. So these disciples are seeing a man who is most likely a ruler in the synagogue, a righteous man, and they see that he's rich. They would have seen those riches as a, as a symbol, as a sign of God's favor on this man. And so what you see Jesus is doing is he is ultimately turning the thoughts of the Jewish world on its head. And it astonishes these disciples. Did you catch also what Jesus called the disciples? He called them children. I think it's no accident that Jesus calls the disciples children here after the passage that we looked at last week in chapter 10, verse 13 through 16, where Jesus tells the disciples that they must be like children in order to enter into the kingdom of God. And as we saw last week, really what that means is that we must be helpless, insignificant, in need of everything and having nothing. Well, what will riches so often do? They will give the mistaken belief that I am in need of nothing. Nothing will boost self-confidence and self-assurance more than having everything at your fingertips, having everything at your beck and call. So the childlike status the helpless in need of everything status that is required for entry into God's kingdom is so often obscured when you have great possessions, when you have power, when you have influence. The needy disposition can so often be drowned out by wealth 
by power, by influence. The disciples asked the question then, in response to these words from Jesus, then who can be saved? If this man who is righteous, if this man has, who has riches as a sign of his righteousness, if this man doesn't have eternal life, then who in the world can be saved? Now notice Jesus' response is not anybody but rich people. His response isn't, well, if you're poor. His response is a general application to all mankind. Jesus says, with man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. With this statement, really, Jesus is driving home the fact that any hope of salvation must be found in God's grace and God's grace alone. Not only grace, but, but sovereign grace. Sovereign, almighty, supernatural grace and grace alone can save those who are dead in their sin. Jesus is here not caught talking about what is often referred to as synergism, a viewpoint that is held in some churches today, which really holds the view that, that man must cooperate with God's grace. God goes halfway, man goes halfway, and when they meet in the middle, then salvation is possible. There's a synergy between man's work and God's grace, and then salvation is possible. That is not what Jesus is presenting here. Rather, what Jesus is presenting is what we call monergism. Grace is monergistic, which means that God goes all the way. Salvation is solely a work of God and God alone. Salvation is 100% a supernatural work that is playing on that which is naturally dead due to sin. Doing that which is naturally impossible. It is God spiritually regenerating a dead soul due to sin. Ephesians 2, verse 4, Paul will say, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even while we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. All the disciples can contribute to salvation. All that we can contribute to salvation is death. God alone regenerates. God alone makes that which is dead come alive. I find it so fascinating and somewhat ironic that oftentimes the chief argument from skeptics today about the resurrection of Jesus Christ is that dead men don't rise from the dead. Duh. It is impossible. For a dead man to rise from the dead. And what's so ironic about that skeptical position is that in their skepticism, they are actually grasping a vital truth of the gospel. Sadly, a truth many Christians today, self-proclaimed Christians, fail to see. It is true. The skeptics are absolutely right. 
Man cannot rise again from the dead by himself. Man cannot revive himself once dead in sin. It is impossible. But what is impossible for man is possible for God. Just as God, through his power, by his spirit, resurrected his son, Jesus Christ, so also God, by his power, through his spirit, in his son, raises our dead souls that were dead due to sin. Skeptics are right. It is impossible to raise dead men. But God, in his sheer love... And God, in his sheer grace, does what we cannot do for ourselves. He resurrects the dead. He revives dead souls due to sin. And what we see in verse 28 through 31 is the evidence and the manifestation of God's sovereign grace in action. The evidence and manifestation of God's reviving work is seen and sacrificing all for the sake of Christ. Peter Peter will say in verse 28, we've left everything and followed you, Jesus. And Jesus responds in verse 29, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mothers or fathers or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. Really with this response, Jesus is continuing to contradict the standard Jewish thinking of his day. For Peter and for the disciples and the Jewish religious circles of the day, The manifestation of God's grace would have been seen in people like this rich man. It would have been seen in the comfort and ease and and the many possessions along with the honor and the respect that this, this rich man has. But do you see what Jesus is doing here and what Jesus is saying here? He is saying now the display of God's grace and God's blessing will be seen in persecutions, not in being honored within the Jewish religious circles. It will not be manifest itself by being first, number one in the synagogue, as this man most likely was. It will be put on display and manifested in the lives of these disciples as they are kicked out of synagogues, as they are kicked out of the temple, as they are outcasts in society. And that will be the sign of God's grace, God's power, vitally working in the lives of his disciples. Just think of Acts chapter 5, where you have the apostles and they are brought before the Jewish council and the high priest and they beat the apostles. And what does Luke tell us that the response of those apostles was? He says they rejoiced because they were beaten for the cause of Christ. What are they rejoicing in? They are rejoicing in the grace and the salvation of God, and that grace and salvation of God that is manifested in the moment they are persecuted for the sake of Christ. 
God's grace and God's blessing is not seen in the rich man. It is seen in the poor man who stands up for Christ and is beaten and persecuted for his cause. But with the loss of the family that rejects Christ will come, as Jesus tells us, the gain of a whole new family, a family of believers, mothers and fathers and brothers and and sisters that are not mothers, brothers, fathers, and sisters according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And this family, this hundredfold family, as Jesus calls it, extends beyond Jerusalem and into Judea and into Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And this is a family that is not only enjoyed here in this life, but it will be a family that will be enjoyed in the age to come in eternity. God's grace, brothers and sisters, now is manifested as we grow in love and affection for one another. Not only as we grow in for love and affection for one another in this room, but as we grow in love and affection for all the family of God that extends to the ends of the earth, to all those who Paul will say in Galatians 3 are the true children of Abraham by faith. God's grace now, brothers and sisters, is seen as we say goodbye to the things of this world and we cling to Christ and we cling to those things that belong to the age to come where we enjoy each other forever in the presence of God and in the presence of Christ, our Savior. Let's pray. Dear Father, we, we are helpless children. We can do nothing to save ourselves, but you, in your sheer grace and sovereign love, have done what man cannot do, and you have saved and revived dead sinners. And as we learn here in this passage, there is a cost for that salvation. There is loss of loved ones. There is loss of, of old friends who reject Christ. But with it, there is the gain of a new family in Christ, a family of believers. Father, I pray that each and every one of us in this room would seek to love and care for our spiritual family as much, if not more, than our physical family, and that you would bind our wandering hearts to you, bind us to that age to come, where we enjoy that family, where we will sit at table and eat and drink with our Lord and our Master Christ. Give us this hope, this day we pray, for we ask it in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.